Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Pow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck nicks? What the fuckers? I don't say things like what the fuck faces because that doesn't sound good to me or what the fuck wads. That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound like a good thing. You know, I don't really say that stuff. That's mean. Like, what the fuckaholics? What the, uh, what the fuckaricans? What the fuckamolans? I can do all I just felt like I became Andy Kinwer's impression of me. Jesus, relax. You don't know what kind of cat owner you are until one of your cat does some fucked up thing and you're worried. Pow! Justcoffee.coop iced. Thank you very much. I shit my pants. I ran out of breath on that. I shit my pants. Okay, wait, before I forget this, uh, Michigan, Detroit area, I will be at the uh, Magic Bag Theater in Ferndale, Michigan on September 29th for two shows. I believe the website is themagicbag.com, perhaps, or go to wtfpod.com and figure that out. Cliff Nesteroff is on the show today. Why is Cliff Nesteroff on the show? Who is Cliff Nesteroff, do you ask? Cliff Nesteroff writes a series of blog posts uh, on the WFMU Beware of the Blog, that that's where you can find him. You can also do a, a Google search on his name. Uh, that is Cliff, K-L-I-P-H, Nesteroff, N-E-S-T-E-R-O-F-F. The reason I love this guy and wanted to talk to him is he writes some of the darkest, seediest, most beautiful pieces on, on show business, on comedy uh, specifically. He does other stuff, but the mobs included and TVs included, but he really gets into the nooks and crannies of the darkness behind old showbiz, you know, primarily 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, all of it, but he's great at it. And I was completely enchanted with his writing. And when I met him up in Vancouver, I didn't, I had no idea who this guy is. And like some of you don't know what I look like, especially the writer. You're like, I just pictured this guy, some dude who was probably in his fifties or sixties who had stacks of newspapers and clippings, but he's a young dude, used to be a comic, very animated. And I was thrilled to meet him and I couldn't wait to get him on the podcast. I was extremely excited to talk to Cliff Nesteroff and I'm excited to share that conversation with you. So here's what's going on. I did Chelsea lately today. I'm going to get back to that. I come home. I had some people come over from the production of Marin on IFC who wanted to look at my house, get the vibe, take some pictures. Four people come over. LaFonda freaks out. My cat LaFonda freaks the fuck out. And the door is hooked. The screen door is hooked. And she just runs towards the screen door, sticks her head out of it, and wedges, squeezes her whole body, you know, pulling her feet behind her, through that little crack and it was like a just an explosion of of furious cat fear outside the door so now i don't know where the hell she is she goes outside but i can't find her so now i'm left jess and i are left to worry about whether or not she hurt herself going out the door i know cats can squeeze through a, a keyhole if necessary but still you worry about a cat and that my friends is how you know what kind of crazy cat owner you are You can love your cat. You can feed your cat. But as soon as they disappear for any amount of time, shit, I have canceled trips for this cat. You know, I can't go. Fonda's not inside. 
But it's been a while. She's been a little weird about going out there. So now we're like parents on edge over here. We're sitting around waiting. We're, we're about to call the missing cat police. Going to you know, make some, I'm not going to make signs. It's only been it's not, maybe an hour, but I, but I freak out. And then like we both freak out. And it's interesting when you're in a couple and you're close and there's love there. If you both worry about the same thing, it's amazing how quickly you can make that each other's fault and start yelling at each other. Elevate that problem. Get away from the practical problem at hand, which is our cat's gone. We're sad and say, fuck you. Why did you No, Fuck you. How come you wait? Fuck you. And then you've got a new problem. So then you can sit there wondering where your cat is and just whether or not this relationship is going to survive. That's what you do with problems in a relationship. You escalate them to the point where they're personal, and then the original problem becomes obscured by the clear problem you're having together. So if Fonda doesn't come back soon, I'm thinking Jessica's is probably going to leave. She says it's funny. She's here. She want to make. <laughs> she's, she's not laughing per se, but uh, but she approved of that. So let's get back to show business real quick and why I was so excited to have Cliff Nestor off on the show. I just did Chelsea lately today. It's, I don't do that show a lot. I've been doing it a little more because I accept the fact now that I'm a comedian and I should do shows that comedians do and do the job that a comedian does. I'm proud to be a comedian. But there's also some other moment that I have, especially on a TV set or backstage at a show where you're watching somebody else you know, approach the stage, where you, you watch somebody you know, leave backstage and then go on stage and you're standing on the sidelines and you see the transformation of, of your peer in my case, go from like, all right, I'm going on. You good? Okay. I'm good. Are we good? All right. And then the announcing of the name, please welcome. And then boom, they're under the lights. And there's something so amazing about just being there backstage and watching somebody under, under the lights, doing their job, performing, entertaining, bringing it to the audience. And I was at Chelsea today and she runs that place. She runs a pretty tight ship over there. She's very pleasant. She's very professional. But like I was watching her, I was sitting at the panel and she came out to do her monologue. And just the difference between like, I know that person. I was you know, backstage with that person. And now there they are under the lights. The makeup person is fixing their face. It's, it's exciting. And it's my job and it's my life. And I've always been fascinated with it. But I've also been fascinated with, you know, now that I'm privy to being behind the scenes, because I am behind the scenes, is that uh, when I was younger, I always was fascinated with with the older actors, with the uh, with, with you know black and white photographs of people, black and white movies, watching uh, old TV shows on uh, Channel 11 in New York, the Dead End Boys or the Bowery Boys and the and Alfalfa and the gang and the Three Stooges and Laurel and Hardy and all that. I was just fascinated with these old guys that I knew they were probably dead or old. And you remember that first time where you, you watch Laurel and Hardy as a kid and then you see a picture of Laurel and Hardy when they're in their 70s and you're like, what? Why? That's so scary. They're, but they're people. And they're, they're, they're people with lives and there's something sordid about black and white and there's something sordid about, you know, the scandal. When I was young and in my room, I got some magazine, a tabloid magazine that had all these pictures of Fatty Arbuckle and uh, Jane Mansfield and all the scandals from the great era of Hollywood. I cut out all the pictures and I surrounded my bed with them, not even really having a context with them. I was enchanted by the darkness that was just, I knew, just pulsating behind black and white images. So somewhere in my head, I began to feel like there were, there were these mythic personalities that had these mythic dark capabilities. I don't even know how to explain it. There was a seediness to it. 
And now I'm part of show business and I love it. I'm actually part of show business. And I, I'm, I'm excited because now some of that myth has been uh, broken down a little bit, but not much. I, I still am very uh, starstruck and, and excited. I'm very excited when people listen to my show or they respect what I'm doing, especially if they're movie stars. I'm not a star fucker, but it, I, I got to be honest with you, it's flattering. I went to a screening of Judd Apatow's new film. Uh, this is 40, it's called. And uh, I was uh, asking Judd, uh, through email if he wanted to do a little cameo on my show and then he shot back an email saying yeah, i'd like you to come to this screening at the soho club so I, I of course said yeah yeah definitely and it was a very small gathering of a very eclectic bunch of people that were pretty famous and i never really know how to behave in that in those situations i mean it was a very interesting crew uh it was uh, uh peewee herman andy samberg john favreau uh, Elizabeth Banks, Andy Dick, uh, Phil Rosenthal, who's been on the show, was there. It's a very interesting, and this happens in Hollywood a lot. Is that you know you see strange groups of celebrities, you know, just strange in the, the grouping of them, where you like, but then you realize that this is their business. These are these are business fellow, they're coworkers for God's sakes. But I was pretty excited to be there. I was pretty excited that Elizabeth Banks wanted to be on my show. I was pretty excited to meet John Favreau because I'd never met him before. And uh, he's a very nice guy. And we all, oh, Diane Cannon was there. It's very interesting. But there, as strange as it is to me, I would never have had, I would never have been invited to something like that in the past. But but now in, I, I kind of stifle my starstruckness with a, with a certain, you know, I don't know if it's confidence, but like, yeah, I guess I'm part of this now, finally. I'm I'm in show business. The movie was uh, was interesting because you know Judd basically made an autobiographical movie with his wife and his children and a guy playing him. That takes some big balls to do that. To watch another man make out with your wife and parent your children on screen for two hours, I that was uh, you know and, it, and some of it was very revealing. There was uh, there were some funny moments. There were some touching moments. There were some uncomfortable moments, uh, but. It's a very personal movie, and, and I think uh, I, I was sitting right next to Apatow, so the pressure was on. I, I opened up my laugh gasket and, and let it happen. I didn't stifle any laughs. Wanted to be encouraging. See, that's the interesting thing that's happened now. I, I hope I don't lose my ability to be cynical and critical, at, you know, knowing people now. You, you know, because, you know, the movie is one thing, but, you, you know, I know Judd spent a lot of time on it and this is a very personal movie for him. And on some level, as a friend, I, I'm thinking like, why? Well, I, I hope this goes well for Judd. There was a lot of things I could relate to. And apparently a lot of people with kids, because I was walking out and I said to a couple of people, I said, that was pretty good. And, and a couple, uh, John Favreau was like, I'm living it. I'm living it. But uh, I guess I'm admitting that I love show business. Is that Okay. I, I is that okay? I love show business. Can I say that? I like Chelsea Handler. I love show business. I was flattered to be invited. I, I guess that it. That's it. Maybe I'm evolving out of the darkness, but that's the other thing. I am, and and my girlfriend is too. Uh, you know, extremely fascinated with the uh, the dark nooks and crannies of celebrity culture, and that's why we're going to talk to Cliff Nesteroff. Now let's get dark. Let's get seedy. Let's get into a conversation with. Cliff Nesteroff, please go go read his stuff. It's awesome. Cliff Nesteroff, Nesteroff, 
Nestor off, no H. No H. Yeah, but I kind of like that aggressive uh, pronunciation. Hoff. Yeah. So uh, look, man, I uh, I don't know anything about you. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I read your pieces on the uh, what on the WFMU. What is it? Return of the blog or what? The monster. What is it called? I just say WFMU because I hate using the word blog. But in what? what with but myself. there's a name to Beware it. Aware of the blog. Aware of the blog. This weird corner of the world. Yeah. Where you decide to uh, to publish some of the most gritty and insightful pieces on the guts of old comedy. And then I meet you in Vancouver. Yeah. And you're all lit up. Yeah. And uh, how old are you? I'm 32 now. Well, you're 32, but you I wanted you to do the live one, but you were like, no, these Vancouver guys will get mad at me because you're a comic. Are you still a comic? No, I haven't been a comic for six years. I, uh, I quit doing stand-up. I feel like I kind of peaked. Maybe that's not true. I didn't do it that long. I did it for seven and a half years. I really feel like you got to do it at least 10 to really be a comic. Why'd you quit? I I think I kind of went as far as I could in Vancouver. It was either that or move. And uh, I didn't really feel like moving to do stand-up. I kind of got sick of doing very similar shows or the same venues every week and seeing the same people. Yeah. And I love seeing the comics that I love. But when you do stand-up, you also got to see the comics that you hate and listen to them and deal with them. And uh, I didn't care for that. It was just not enjoyable. And then on the got off- no tolerance for uh, for the sadness of it. Well, that and then on the nights that I wasn't doing stand up, and that wasn't very often. My God, I enjoyed it so much. Well, not yeah. doing stand up, I was like, this is like real people. They're walking around at eight p.m. Yeah. Instead of waiting in an empty dark room for an audience to show up. So, you, just so didn't, I, you didn't have it in you. I didn't have it in me. I mean, I had in two thousand three, four, and five in Vancouver. My stand up act was, you know, by regional estimations very successful what kind of bits do you do uh i had what, what I, was your thing i had two acts one which was just straight stand-up as myself mm-hmm. which wasn't successful this is probably one of the reasons i quit when i was being earnest and acting my own persona it wasn't so hot uh i also had a very gimmicky act mm. where i did a character uh which was kind of dark it was sort of like my id it was a real angry comic um which i wasn't but i would do it as a character and make fun of all the things that I hated, including some of those comics that I didn't care for. And it was wildly successful. The audience loved it. What was it. the name of the character? Shecky Gray. Shecky Gray. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it became really, really popular and didn't really deserve to be so popular. But, you know, one of the classic gimmicks in stand-up, which is almost always successful, is guys who talk loud and fast. Yeah. Whether they're funny or not. If they're funny, then they're even more successful when they talk loud and fast. You found that from your research in clubs and in general? I found that from my own act because yeah. I would do very similar material in my own persona in Didn't a measured work. pace and people fucking hated it. I go, you assholes, this is the same brain where that other shit that you're laughing at comes from. Yeah. But it was delivered in such a fast, loud, hostile way that people just cheered for it. You don't feel like you're a hostile person? Uh, not as my general persona, but I'm sure mm. like when I was doing that character, I would get off stage and apologize to certain people. Maybe if the MC was a real hack, I'd say, Hey, sorry about uh, what I said. You know, it's all just an act. He go, yeah, I know. Yeah. And it is all, all just an act, you. but it was all in my subconscious, what I would have normally wanted to say, but would never actually yeah, so cross you, that line. Did you find yourself alienating those other comics where they're like, yeah, he says it's just an act, but that guy's a fucking asshole. Uh, maybe, maybe I would, I would try and diffuse it by saying, oh, my character's an asshole. My character doesn't even like me. He mm-hmm. thinks I'm a hack. And they'd be like, sure. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. They, they think you're just crazy. I don't know. Like the act became quite successful. And I think rather than, uh, hate me, which I'm sure people did, 
there was a modest amount of ass kissing because of that degree, like a mm-hmm. little bit of a, a deferment. Yeah. Um, whether that was, you know, I don't know, whatever a comic's motivations you know, are for that. Rickles used to apologize to people after a show. Right. And right, my right. grandmother said he, he apologized very nicely to the people after the show. But I didn't care for him, she'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Shecky Green she liked. Yeah. Now, I've read, uh, I think the first piece I read of yours was probably that Shecky Green piece. And now you, you walk in, you, you're all upset. You just got a call from Jack Carter. Yeah, minutes ago, yeah. What are you doing with Jack Carter? Uh, so, and why? Well, uh, for the past couple of years, I've been interviewing old comedians, generally speaking, as uh, background for the articles that I write. You know, I glean information and stories from them and weave a narrative in an article I write. But I also transcribe these interviews and post them verbatim, just for the sake of interest. On the WFMU. On my own site called Classic Television Showbiz. It has a much smaller audience, but it's just real comedy nerds like reading these verbatim uh, conversations with old comics. Old-timey comedy nerds. I mean, that's a rare thing. You know, it's still my belief that even even the piece you wrote on Joe Ansis and Jack Roy, you know, was something that I didn't realize. You know, that, like, I found that in that piece that there was uh, sort of a recalibration that needed to be done about the roots of modern stand-up. Now, I don't know if you had that intention, but, you know, in talking about, you know, Jack Roy, who became Rodney Dangerfield, and Joe Ansis, who was, you know, reputed to be the the guts of Lenny Bruce uh, intellectually, uh, that, you know, because they were selling jokes and because, you know, he, Rodney had quit the business and wasn't his own thing, that if the amount of jokes that they did sell was true then they're sort of responsible for a lot more than we think. And it yeah. puts it puts Rodney in a whole new light for me. So, you know, these articles uh, that you write are well-researched, but the comedy nerddom, like I'm that kind of comedy nerd, but I don't know if what you would call the new comedy nerds give a shit about this stuff. Uh, it seems like everybody that does stand up at least has some kind of affinity for the comedy they watched when they grew up, whatever right. that might be. They So they have a, some kind of historical context. I can't really gauge... Uh, what kind of age group or who is more into a certain era than others. Uh, but I do like to, I love it when I do discover something that breaks the mold of what has always been believed. You know, and Lenny Bruce is considered a god, even by people like um, when Tracy Morgan went on Letterman and was kind of apologizing for his his rant. He said, I'm in the tradition of Lenny Bruce, you know, I'm yeah. a truth teller. And I was just like, I don't think he's ever really paid attention to Lenny Bruce. And even that being said, our record of Lenny Bruce Literally, the records don't give you a good indication of what he really sounded like. And then that performance film of his is at the end of his career. So we really listening to him or watching him, it doesn't seem as great as this myth well, has been made. Well, it takes a lot of contextualization. Exactly. I mean, even as somebody who who would throw that word around when I was younger, you know, you've really got to you've got to look at the historical context and and you've got to see why what he was doing was so provocative. And then later, the information about about him literally being made. You know, an enemy by the old boys network of judges previous to him becoming controversial. Sure. You know, that plays into it too. Like I had no idea about that shit. Something I find fascinating and I haven't written about this yet and I want to because certain myths just get passed on as fact over the years and then we all believe them and you start investigating, you find them contradicted. Mm-hmm. Um, I discovered a couple comics that were busted for their language and their profanity on stage before Lenny Bruce. Right. And we all think of him as being the martyr and I'm not taking that away from him at all. Um, because 
what he spoke about was definitely more culturally significant and did take certain topics on that these other comics that got busted profanity didn't. Well, not unlike, I think, you know, whatever has become alt comedy. Once comedy aligns itself culturally with with music and and a sort of youth trend, like I think the guy you're talking about was just filthy, right? As far as I know, yeah. Right, like, uh, and he got busted on just, uh, you know, sort of community standards thing. But I think that Lenny became a real threat because there was an entire shift you know, that sort of, uh, what is it, just post-Eisenhower beatnik thing, yeah. pre-hippie, that, you know, once the youth becomes uh, unpredictable, you know, the, the forces that run yeah. society get nervous. I, well, certainly. So I, I would never take that away from him. But the, the, the martyrism that people usually speak of in, in Lenny, they go, they talk about the language. And they say, the whole reason we can say what we want on stage is because Lenny, because of Lenny Bruce. And that's only partially true it's part of a, a an entire cultural movement that he was part of with many others the guy that i'm thinking of whose name i can't even remember because i haven't written the article yet i just found a couple variety blurbs on him he went to prison he was a comedian that was imprisoned for five months what did he say it well they didn't print it in the in the variety they just said uh, profane language or uh, lascivious uh, material so when this you, is the 40s how how like you've got all the varieties i mean how far do your varieties go back to are you I subscribe to a service online, which is not cheap, where you can access all the old uh, variety. But it's not through variety? Yeah, it is. It's oh, from it is? 1908 to the present day, but it's. Uh, I actually put a fun, fun drive on my website simply to subscribe to, uh, to variety. Uh, variety Ultimate is the archive. And that's where you start? Uh, generally, because it's the best resource. But that stuff that I found out about that guy who went to jail, I found out by accident. I was researching something else, and I saw that headline in the corner, and I was like, hello, what's this? That's the same way I found out about that comedian whose wife was murdered by the mob, Alan Drake, because I found a headline that said, comedian's wife murdered in mob hit. And I was like, yeah, oh, God. That, well, that's that's a great story. But let's, let's, go, let's come back around to that. Let's get back to Jack Carter. So you're dealing one-on-one yeah. -on -one with Jack Carter. But you go, okay, so you interview these guys. You put the transcripts up. You know, yeah. obviously... There's something that res. Are you Jewish? No, uh, Carl Reiner thinks I am. Oh, well, that that then you are. I guess yeah. <laughs> he's, he's the decider. I, I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, all right, so you're working with Jack Carter now. What was the problem? Well, I started interviewing him last April. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I he was always a ubiquitous guy on TV. I never all really... I know him from is like what uh, Hollywood Squares or Match Game or Both. like in and uh, television shows. He was already old by the time I was a kid, yeah. but he was a, a Borscht Belt original. Really, he was a hokey guy in like a Milton Berle, Maury Amsterdam style. Right, and I would watch him on old TV shows, and I was like, there he is again. Oh, and then here's an episode of The Odd Couple. There's Jack Carter. But he's a second stringer, even yeah. among those guys. Like sure. uh, Freddie Roman, Jan Murray. You know, he wasn't Milty. You know, there was, f what, four or five of those Borscht Belt guys that really became uh, to national prominence in the early days of television. But there was dozens yes. of well, second stringers. Well, Jack Carter, uh, to be candid, I never really cared for. But I found him fascinating because he was on every fucking show. And I was like, he keeps popping up. And it was the same kind of hokey act where he'd stick his tongue out and cross his eyes and go, oh! Yeah. And uh, wouldn't shut up, you know. Any yeah. game show he's on, he's tearing up the cards. He's causing havoc. And uh, so I got a line on him. I tracked him down. I decided, let's interview him. And there was a girth of history to him I didn't know about. He started doing stand-up in 1941. He had one of the first TV shows ever. Really? 1948, he was the host of Cavalcade of Stars, yeah. which Jackie Gleason took over because NBC courted Jack Carter and gave him the Jack Carter Show Saturday nights, 8 p.m. on NBC for an hour. That's big. It was the lead into your show of shows for Sid Caesar. Right. But nobody remembers it. And Jack, to this day, is bitter about this. Yeah? 
because he felt like he was railroaded. Sid Caesar. By who? He goes, Sid Caesar, he was the darling, the critic's darling, and I was treated like crap. I was treated like crap. Max Liebman said, he can't be doing ballet shit. That's our shit. So to this day, he gets angry. You know, that Max Liebman shit still pisses me off. <laughs> really? So that was in April. I did these interviews, and they were transcripts for the internet and background for the material. And I, he knew that. Yeah. I said, you know, this is for the internet. I interviewed him several times because he had so much material. He was the first guy to host a roast on mm-hmm. TV, the first mm-hmm. guy to host the Tony Awards on TV. He guest hosted The Tonight Show bef- in the interim between Jack Parr and Johnny Carson. Jack Parr left. They hadn't brought Johnny Carson on yet. There was six months in there where they had guest hosts. And he, Jack, he did it? He did it for a month. Nobody remembers this stuff, and so he's really mad. Nobody knows this. And uh, So, so he, he sees you as, as his vessel for relevance. Exactly. So after about five interviews, last September he said, Everybody's got a fucking book. Dick Van Dyke's got a fucking book. Betty White's got 12. Who's this bitch? Handler? Writing shit books about vodka? Bestseller? What the fuck? Jeff Ross? King of roasts? King of roasts! This two-bit comic's been in show business for three seconds. Is King of roasts. I did more roasts. Like, he just really steamed, you know? <laughs> so he goes, you know a lot about me. Maybe you should write my book. I said, sure, I'd love to. This is fun, you know? <laughs> it's uh, fun. That sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> So we decided I'll, I'll ghostwrite his book. So mm. we started doing that in September, and that was the whole point. Well, uh, Jack is almost 90 years old. Just one month ago, his wife showed him something on the internet, which was a transcript of our interview on my site, Classic Television Showbiz. And, uh, and Jack Carter phoned me, and he goes, Cliff, I got a bone to pick with you. I said, yeah, what's up, Jack? He goes, my wife is on the computer. She says, oh, look at this. And there on the computer is every fucking word I ever said to you. It's going to hurt the book. I don't know who you sold this to. You're making money off of me. I go, I didn't sell it to anybody. It's my site. It's on the internet. It's your site? Then how did it get on her computer? No. Have you ever tried to describe the internet to a 90-year-old? Oh, God. Yeah. that, That comes back around to the Shecky Green thing, too. All right. So, okay. So what happened after that? So um, I got him a gig in Boston, actually. I didn't tell him. I just recommended him, and he got the gig. And then he For fa- what? It was like- uh, He still works? Sort of. What sort does that of. mean? Um, he's burned so many bridges in the last five decades that he's almost persona non grata. He does some sure, TV. But, but I got to imagine that the people, the bridges he burned were built by people that aren't even alive anymore. I mean, it, it's got to be relative this, to what, what who, who's he going to play to? He's going to play to the synagogues. This, this is how far reaching his bad rep got that in 2012, guys from 50 years ago are telling people, don't book him, don't book him. Are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. So this guy emailed me from Boston. He goes, I contacted the Friars Club because we're it's like for old people, this show, and we want some old comedians. And I wanted Jack Carter, and the Friars Club said, no, 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 you don't want Jack Carter. You don't want Jack Carter. So this guy emailed me, and he said, I just wanted your opinion. I said, no, Jack would love to do it. He'd be great. He, he's got an incredible memory. He can just rattle off these old jokes like nothing. And when the he's been in show business for 70 years. So when the light goes on, like, he turns on. Yeah. You know, he can do it, even though he's he's frail and, you know. So he did the gig, and it went well. And then he called me, or I called him the other day, and he goes, I did that show in Boston. Uh, he meant do you know this guy? He mentioned your name. I go, no, I never met him, but he says, he says nobody wanted to book me. And then he said that you said I, he should. I go, yeah, that's right. And then all of a sudden Jack just was like, oh, well, you should come over for lunch tomorrow. You know, <laughs> what's going on with you? Let's talk. <laughs> I went over to his house and stuff like that. And we had a good talk the other day at his house. Mm-hmm. Five minutes before I got here to your garage, we were driving up 
and my phone rang and there was a question mark on the phone, you know, like don't know the number. I thought maybe it was your assistant because it was right. like five minutes before I had to be here. And it's Jack Carter. He goes, Cliff, I got a bone to pick with you uh, again. I again. go, what's wrong? He goes, I was at somebody's house last night. All the laptops come out and people look up Jack Carter and they say, look at this. Oh, look, you called this person a scumbag. You called this person a garbage pail. You'll say anything, Jack Carter. I was a laughing stock. They were all laughing at me. And he gets worked up like a snowball downhill. Goes, I just, I don't know who you're selling this to. Are you making me? The people are the libel suits. And he just went crazy. It's just now. Just now. And to the end, and I was supposed to go to his house tomorrow to keep working on the book. He goes, we're through. We're through. You and me, we're through. And he hung up. So you, you're not, now you don't have any reason to be down here. <laughs> well. Except to do this, which I appreciate. Well, I appreciate it too. Well, it's very funny that uh, you know that I now now is that uh, the 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 voice you're mustering up? Is that is that uh, anything like the character you used to do? Yeah, a little bit too much. I don't think this sounds anything like Jack Carter. It does sound just like my character, but ironically, no. But that's a, that that is you know in some weird kind of poetic channeling, the uh, it, it is the tone of Semitic fury <laughs> that runs through. What I would imagine to be, you know, the hearts of these guys that feel jilted by history. Yeah. Now, and that's, I mean, that's what I saw in the dressing room of Vancouver. Like, I'd never met you before. I didn't know what you look like. I had no idea. We had one email exchange about a Shecky Green issue. And uh, when you showed up, I'm like, this guy? Who's this guy? And then I'm talking to you, and all of a sudden, that fucking thing comes out of your mouth. <laughs> that voice. And I'm like, that is, that is the Semitic momentum of bitterness and 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 shattered uh, narcissism <laughs> that I think runs through a lot of these guys. Runs through me. It runs through. I, I mean, a lot of entertainers. But there's something specifically Jewish about it. But I like uh, I, just to tell my story, so you know. I mean, I'd reached out to Shecky Green. Now, I, there's part of me that you, you're going to have to give me some. You're going to have to facilitate some context for me. There's a couple of guys. Like, and we'll go over that. I mean, I'd like to talk to Shelley Berman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what about Newhart? I think Newhart would do it. I, I don't have a direct line with him. Have you I, talked to him? No, I've talked to his assistant. But, you know, he usually does interviews when he's... Uh, like, he does those fucking radio interviews when he's doing it some city. Yeah. You know, he goes into St. Louis, he does the morning show. Well, I think not unlike you, it's hard to get them to understand what the interview is for. Yeah. And and the Shecky Green thing was funny, because I wanted to do Shecky Green. I wanted to interview him, because my grandmother loved him, said he was great, and I'd heard that. I'd never really seen... No one. There's no real footage of him That's right. doing what he's known for. Uh, which was improvising. And I think that your article on him puts him into context in a way that I'd never really thought of, that you know, the transition from the the main room show to the lounge show is an interesting thing. And that on some level, not unlike the Jack Roy piece, you know, what you're basically saying through through your journalism is that he almost, I would say, not just in, you know, uh, invented free, free, free association improvisation, or, or riffing with an audience, but I think because of the nature of them building these lounges and then having these entertainers in there before there were even stages in there, on some level, like that's what the the modern stand up club really is. Right, is that you know whatever was going on in the lounges of Vegas because it was cheaper to do, and they realized they had another room where they could drag people in. You know, that's easier to get them back out to the right. casino, in and out of the casino, and maybe stay in the house was really the beginning of a stand up club. Well, the the lounge in Vegas. Initially, you know, it was thought, well, it's not such a big deal. So we'll just throw somebody like Shecky Green up there or Don Rickles. And they themselves felt it wasn't as big of a deal as a showroom. So they had that freedom to say, fuck it. I'm not going to do this this 
material I've prepared. I'll just do whatever. Don Rickles will just start berating people, and it ends up being extremely successful. And same with Shecky Green, and that became what they were known for until it was in demand in main rooms. But it was really because it was a low-pressure environment, a lot like... an intimate. Yeah, and sort of like that alternative comedy concept of the early 90s. Suddenly we're in a more low-pressure environment. We can try things out. This audience is kind of comfortable with that. And we have a seed now of something that becomes something greater and organically builds into a legitimate act. Right. But it was it was born in a low lower pressure environment. And also, yeah, but also the experience of being in the audience of one of those lounge shows when things are happening in real time uh, and in the moment, those have got to be the best shows. Sure. You know? So, uh, okay, so I called called Shecky before I even read your thing on him. And I didn't call him. What happened was I found his website. It looked like nobody maintained that thing. So I'm like, what are the odds I'm going to send an email to anybody? So I send this email two weeks later. I get an email back. says, Shecky Green's interested. This is his phone number. Don't give it to anyone. Like, like I'm like, <laughs> there's a threat there that you know that you don't want Shecky Green's phone number to get out there. So I kind of put it on hold and I didn't call him back because I had this whole idea that I was going to drive out there as sort of a pilgrimage yeah. to talk to Shecky Green. And then I read your article and I'm like, oh shit, that reminds me, I got to get in touch with Shecky Green. So I call that number and uh, I go, Shecky Green's Mark Marin. I'd gotten in touch with you a few months ago about a, an interview for my uh, podcast, my radio show. He goes, did you do that interview on me? I'm like, no. He goes, the one that, uh, the interview. Are you the asshole? You know, like that. And I'm like, but just because I'd read your interview and I'd never met you before, I'm like, no, but I think I know who did it. Who, that fucking guy, right? Why'd he say those things about me? Where'd he get that stuff? Where'd he get that stuff? I'm like, what are you talking about? He didn't even talk about the charities, you know, and I'm, I don't know what he's, <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about, you know? So, so then I get in touch with you just through, a, you know, the email off the site. And, uh, and I go, he wants, I just talked to Jackie Green. He wants to know where you got this stuff. Yeah. And you said, uh, uh, Shecky told it to me. <laughs> it was just so, his quotes verbatim in this article. But that's the funny thing is that like, see, there's a conditional relevance they want. Is that, you know, he's been known for years as this guy who was a drunk, he was a depressive, he drove his car into Caesars, he's responsible for that, the amazing Sinatra joke that is probably one of the best jokes ever written. Wait, can you do it perfectly? I can't do it perfectly because it's one of those things that over the years there's different... Uh, phrases for the punchline, but essentially he was beat up by Frank Sinatra. Well, no, the joke right? is Frank Sinatra saved my life. He said, "All right, that's enough, boys." Yeah, right, exactly, right. So you know that I mean that's great. But he was just he, and you brought up uh, this thing with a gun and Buddy Hackett and Reefer and everything else. But in in the big picture, it's not that that wasn't him or that he's saying it wasn't him. But it's like he he doesn't understand the the you know, why would anyone want to be known for that. You know, like in his generation, it's like that's the shit that I tried to fix. I mean, I, he's probably in his mind been trying for years yeah. to, to put that behind him. Yet that was what's really interesting about, you know, his yeah. life. And the, so all he really wanted from you was for you to talk about the charities. Well, that that, <laughs> that being said, that article that I wrote about Shecky Green, it's the most substantial thing that's ever been written about Shecky Green. Yeah. And before I started writing it and researching it and talking to him, all I knew about Shecky Green really was that the name Shecky is associated with comedy more than any other first name in history to the extent that it's just a first name. And this really. was before, this was after you had named your character that. Like you just named yeah, your character that. I just named my character that for the same reason anybody uses the word Shecky. They think of it like Henny Youngman, take my wife, please. Right. They associate it with some shitty hokey comic from the 50s without having any context for it, and I didn't either. Although, ironically, I've learned that my character was pretty close to the real Shecky Green and the real Jack Carter, just totally by accident. But uh, Shecky Green, um, 
I taught, that's basically the introduction of the article. It's like people hear the word Shecky and they think of an old timey hacky comedian. The reality is something much different. He's not that. He was a very uh, inventive original comedian. And for that time, he was one of the most outrageous original comics there was. But it's interesting that he's one of those guys, unlike Shelley Berman or John Winters or uh, Newhart or Jackie Mason or any of them. Uh, of that time, Mort Saul and even Lenny Bruce, that for some reason he didn't have his shit together enough to have anybody capture his genius uh, in any real way. I mean, you try to look stuff up. You know, he's made appearances on the Dean Martin show. He's made appearances on Roast. But to really, you know, think about the sweat and the intensity of a guy doing an hour plus, you know, two hour improvisational rant fest. You know, or just working with an audience in the moment that so much of that stuff is uncapturable but he he must have not had his shit together to such a degree that he didn't even think to record it I mean I think there's a record or two but I don't know if it, it's well, he, he it. himself would admit that he never translated well to television he never translated well to records and I've asked other old comedians why do you think that is and they said you just couldn't capture it it took 20 minutes for him to just warm up right and every every show was different and every show would be long it would go from 60 to 90 sometimes two hours and it was a real inside show they would throw him on stage really the big shows were at two in the morning all the other comedians and singers had finished their last show of the night in vegas and everybody would go see shecky and a lot of civilians couldn't get into the show because it was all the show people wanted to see him and it was a different show every time and when i ask old guys i was like well what do you remember of his act they're like i, I can't explain it to you it's it's in the ether of the air it was just it was different every time. It was loud. It was inventive. He was just naturally funny. The way some comics are funnier in conversation than on stage. Well, that's but there are certain comics is rare. That's rare, but that live for that, and and they're very they're they're usually aware of it. That they're doing something that is that is real. It's raw. It happens in the moment, and and after it's done, it's gone. Uh, Richard Lewis is now like that. There there are people that will will you know they don't know exactly what they're gonna do, but when they do it, that makes it all worthwhile. It's not even a matter of like, you know, I should have recorded that or anything else, is that to be in that moment and to transcend reality yeah. in that present uh is is what they're after. And yeah. Richard does that now. I mean, you know, Richard is out there, you know, pounding the pavement in comedy clubs because yeah. he fucking loves it and he thinks that's his legacy, that, you know, I'm the real deal. And and I'm I'm working better now than I ever have, and I'm completely open. Yeah. I I mean I don't mean to be hokey about it, but that's stand up in its purest form. I agree with you. And uh, but it's not the greatest. You know, it depends what you want. That's not the greatest for mass so fame. So why don't you explain that to me? You know what you mean by stand up in its purest form? Well, I mean it's a it's a live medium. That's what it is. I have many many friends who are very funny, strong stand up comics. And then they do a comedy special, and I know people that don't know them see the special and say that guy's not funny. Or they, or, and then you got to go. Well, you got to see him live. Exactly. Yeah, I, I've been living with that it's, reality for my entire fucking life. But you know, the best analogy I can give it is if you've ever seen somebody videotape a play, yeah, a Broadway play, and they show a clip on the news tonight. It's opening, and you look at it, it looks like the shittiest, hokiest thing. But if you were to see this play live, it might be riveting. Yeah, because you, you can- just can't film it and make it look. Or sound effective. Yeah, because what happens in a, in a, in a stand-up performance if the uh, the entertainer or the performer is open is that the relationship between the audience, the room, the comic, that it becomes an organic body, and that you know what what you're feeling is something you know visceral. Yeah, you know, it, it's very very difficult to explain that to anybody that hasn't done stand-up because it's such an inside thing. 
Uh, and that, also stand-up's very disposable. People see it on TV, and, and you have a TV medium. You have a situation comedies, you have television, you have everything that's driven by jokes. And I've been saying this a lot lately. Any idiot can write jokes. Anybody can write a joke. And really, you know, a good 75% of any of those idiots can do them on stage and have some effect. But, you know, what, what, what differentiates them from a, a stand-up comic is, is how much of their heart and their, their self is invested in it. Well, think about how many comics evolve organically. Guys who start off funny, you know, and could be great for seven, eight years. I find that the height of their art is when they just unleash. They get so comfortable on stage after 15 years that suddenly something snaps and they become much more honest than they used That's to right. be. That's right. That to me is like pure comedy. That's it's right. pure art. I get, I, I'm with you on that. So what, what was the moment where you became, because I have a sort of dark obsession, you know, that, you know, your stuff speaks directly to some sense of, I can't even call it nostalgia, but there's something fascinating about the eras that you write about, which I would say was probably from, you know, what, 1940 to 1970? Sure. <laughs> right? More that, you know, that, that, that was that weird evolution of show business from what was legitimate kind of show people to sort of what happened once the, uh, the culture changed dramatically and, and that group of show people and show business tried to evolve with it and it got kind of messy and interesting. Right. Well, one thing that uh, that Gerald Nachman in his book, Seriously Funny, I think most people have read that are into comedy, the rebel comedians of the 50s and 60s, his his uh, uh, thesis is that in the 50s, guys like Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce, Bob Newhart, Jonathan Winter, Winters transformed stand up comedy from being the kind of comedy where a, a vaudevillian or a Catskill guy would memorize a joke book and do stand up to this new breed of guys that wrote their own material and did it from sort of an intellectual perspective. That's sort of like the auteur theory in France, right? The, 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 his theory isn't flawed, but what he doesn't say is that now there was these two worlds that actually existed together parallel it's not comedians like one, and stand-ups it wasn't like once one ended and right. another one started shecky green and shelly berman are the exact same age right so they they were still performing alongside each other doing a lot of the same clubs and then guys like bob newhart would get booked into a place like vegas and it didn't fly so well like the audience Initially. wasn't adjusted to this kind of comedy yeah because it wasn't general it, yeah they just it was just different it was just different in fact i heard a great anecdote about the night that Bob Newhart did his first Ed Sullivan shot, a bunch of comics were around a TV in the Friars Club watching it, and Bob Newhart spent 90 seconds setting up his first bit, and these Friars guys were losing it. They're like, this kid is going down in flames. Yeah. He's bombing. Yeah. 90 seconds without a laugh. Oh, my God, I can't even watch it. And Bob Newhart brings down the house with the last four minutes, you know, setting yeah. up this routine, and these guys, when his spot finished, they were silent. So they, the they didn't know what to make of it. Well, they come from the old rule: you need to laugh every thirty seconds. Yeah, or or quicker. Yeah. Yeah. When I did the the Chevy Chase roast, Freddie Roman actually said, uh, you know, because I tanked, and you know they were able to pull it together with a little sweetening and a little cutting. But like I was, they interviewed me in the Observer, and I, you know, because I made a choice. You know, I made the choice to acknowledge that I was tanking, and Freddie Roman's like, you never do that. Yeah, I read yeah. that article; it was horrific. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever wrote that, but that's what I mean. Like the guy who wrote that Observer article, yeah. obviously has never done stand up in his life, and he was on the side of Freddie Roman, saying right. these guys do know how to do stand up, and these other guys, it's not that simple, you schlub. No, I mean the the choice to 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 you know to get the laugh no matter what was the choice I made, you know, to, to, and it wasn't pandering; it was really self deprecating. Right, yeah. but uh, but what was the moment where you're like, you know, wh what sparked your interest in this particular? portal into this darkness i mean i mean there must have been like i understand you had this shecky moment yeah but what was the moment where you're like 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 i remember i met jimmy durante 
when I was a kid, my, my grandmother, we were in Vegas. We met my grandmother in Vegas. I must have been nine or ten. We, used to, we grew up in New Mexico. They come from Jersey, go to Vegas. And somehow or another, she found out Jimmy Durante's room number. And you know, I didn't know Jimmy Durante. She knew Jimmy Durante. But by that time, he was already in his 70s. Right. And she's like, let's go meet him. And he, cha-cha-cha-cha. <laughs> so we go to this room, and my grandmother knocks on the door. And an old man with no makeup, no hair, and a, a wife beater, like horrendous looking. You know, opens the door and goes, hello, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, who is this? <laughs> and my grandmother's like, hello, Mr. Durante, this is my grandson who's terrified, you know, and he was, he did the little, and I'm like, all right, great, and why do we bother that guy? But from that moment on, and also I saw Jackie Vernon when I was like 11, and I, I loved Jackie Vernon. I saw him on TV with the slideshow thing, I thought it's hilarious, so he comes to Albuquerque, played some lounge at a Hilton Hotel, and my, my parents took me, I must have been 12, 11 or 12, and just sitting right there on the stage, and, and you know, having seen a guy on, on TV do this thing, and then seeing this fat, sweaty you know, guy you know, with a you know, worn, you know, worn out tux collar, you know, just like there was something there that the humanity of it was so profoundly more interesting mm. to me than, than what was happening on television. Sure. Which I think that moment probably dictated why I ended up where I am. Well, there's a level of desperation, no matter what the era of show business, and certainly no matter what the era of comedy, and people that dismiss that old-timey comedy based on what they see on, on TV or hear on the radio don't realize what these guys went through when they were doing their live shows in that era. It was very similar today. Uh, to today when you're starting out and you have to do these horrible dives. Back mm-hmm. then, these same guys were schlepping around these horrible fucking dives, bombing hostile audiences, hecklers, drunks, and one element that we don't have today is the mob. They had to deal with the mafia all the time and they had to please them. If they didn't, they didn't get booked. Well, that was a very interesting thing. Another thing I learned from your thing, like, you know, like when I am, as I sit here talking to you, like I realize that your pieces have really changed my thinking around that time and also you know, explain something to me. That you, you know, when you watch Goodfellas and you watch uh, you know this the 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 sort of intimacy, even in The Godfather, uh, with the uh, the story about the Frank Sinatra character, uh, you know you don't really understand what what that relationship was. And I thought that you you explained it very well. That coming out of Prohibition, I mean, there was a big shift, right? Uh, yeah, big time because the Prohibition was how the mob established itself. Mm-hmm. It's where their wealth came from. It's where their power came from. So when Prohibition ended, there was this panic. It was like, are we going to lose our power? We've lost our market. What What the fuck do we do? And plus, we've got all this booze. Yeah. We've got a surplus of booze. And there's this chain of command where our suppliers of booze are mob guys from here. And these other mob guys run it across the border from here. It was a whole chain of command in terms of the who network. was employed. Yeah. So that was in jeopardy. So what do they do? Um, they already had the speakeasies. They already had all these venues. And was it all going to go to waste? So they decided, well, let's sort of do a switch and make them legitimate. We own them. We're not paying any overhead for the actual venues. We have them. They turned them into nightclubs and they started booking performers because they couldn't attract people based on the fact that it was clandestine booze anymore. You can get it anywhere. You can go to a liquor store now and buy it. So The booze was the star before. That's right. So now they had to sort of uh, you know keep it making money, but obviously it didn't have, you know, they had to bring people to the booze. They had to bring people to the booze and it had to be more than just some cockamamie singer. They right. went tenfold. They said, let's put on the biggest shows possible, like vaudeville, but instead of in a depressing, shoddy vaudeville house, we'll put it in the most glamorous, beautiful nightclubs uh, possible. So and those were really, the dinner clubs. Those were the supper clubs, yeah. So places like the Copacabana in New York, 
Uh, I mean, Miami Beach was really the hotbed. It was Las Vegas before Vegas. We're talking about the mid to late 30s is when this stuff exploded. Miami Beach was the hottest place for comedians, the most work, the most glamorous supper clubs all through the 40s and 50s. Even during Las Vegas's heyday, Miami Beach was still a real hopping place. But that was like that really sort of puts the history behind that bit, bit of business in The Godfather, that the mob contract with a performer was solely to bring people into their venues to, to buy liquor, which is really what a bar does now. But I mean that the intensity of it and the amount of money and power the mob had, uh, you know, they were able to draw these huge acts and to guarantee that those people brought business to where they were, you know, gambling and liquor yeah. was. And that was legal. Yeah, and the difference also back then was that a lot of these mob guys were so uh, hands-on with their operation, which is not necessarily the case with a lot of places now. It's much more corporate now. Back then- Oh, like, yeah, go to an improv. I wish there was a mob guy at the improv. Like, these guys really took their dudes under- their wing. And that's also where the relationship sort of built, that there was a comfort that, you know, they, because there's those records, uh, that great bit that Lenny Bruce does about Shelly Berman yes, yeah. making fun of the, the mob guys, right? Yeah, yeah, he picks on, a, and it's a true story, too. Uh, Shelly Berman actually told me the story uh, himself in his own words and said it, what Lenny Bruce said was absolutely true, how he was on stage. There was a guy being loud in the audience, and he, he's, you know, got mad at this guy in the audience. Could you shut up, sir? I'm trying to do a very, you know, intimate piece here. And the guy wasn't so happy with him. And when he got off the stage, the owner of the club, who I'm assuming was also mob connected, this was in Chicago, uh, came over to Shelly and said, you got to go apologize to that man. And you got to be earnest and gracious and you apologize and say it won't happen again. He goes, nah, I'm not going to do that. The guy's a fucking asshole. Right. He's talking during my show. Yeah. It's the most important climax of the whole bit. Yeah. It's a father talking to his son. I'm not going to. He said, you go apologize to him now or you, you don't know. Not only is your career going to be over, your life might be over. Go yeah. and apologize to that guy. And it was one of the most powerful mobsters in Chicago uh -huh. talking about the early 60s. Um, and that's exactly what he had to do. He had to go grovel. You know, Shelly Berman has a lot of uh, pompous pride. You know, he's not the kind of guy that would normally do that, but he had no choice. So even those and new found wave comics had to deal with that mob element. But you found that that is a story that a lot of comics have. Oh, yes. Yeah, Jack Carter was threatened by the mob six different times in four different cities over the course of his career. Because he's an audience guy. He's, yeah, he picked on people, or he'd pick, he picked on a woman with a crazy-looking hat uh, in Chicago as well, I think. Some woman in the middle of his show walked in with this thing with all these feathers, like a hat that was like four feet tall and sat down like in the front row or the second row. And the whole audience saw that and Jack Carter saw it. And you're not going to just let, let that go when you are an audience spritzing guy. Yeah. So he went to work on this hat. You know, what the hell's that on your head? Da 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 da. Looks like this, looks like that. Oh, well, you got a crazy hat, blah, blah, blah. Did this five minute rant. Got off stage, and uh, I think it was Jack E. Leonard, the the predecessor to Don Rickles, the original yeah. insult comic of that era, ran into Jack Carter's- Was he the guy who had his throat cut, Jack E. Leonard? No, that's Joe E. Lewis. Okay. There was a lot of middle initials yeah, back yeah, then yeah, for yeah. some reason. But uh, Jack E. Leonard ran into Jack Carter's dressing room. He says, go upstairs, go to your hotel room right now, right now, you're in big trouble. And Jack Carter didn't know Jackie Leonard. He'd never met, met him before. He just thought it was some crazy fat guy in a yeah. white suit. He goes, ah, what are you, get out of here. Yeah. He goes, kid, I'm telling you, run to your hotel room. And these mobsters came hammering on the door. But luckily, Jackie Leonard, uh, who was from Chicago, was a darling of the mob. He was one of the mafia's favorite comedians. So he was able to calm these guys down. The kid didn't know what he's doing. He's green. He's green. I'll take care of him. I'll take care of him. Let me deal with him. I'll, I'll, I'll wise him up. Just, just let the kid alone. These guys had their guns out. They were ready to kill Jack Carter. 
and this was at the start of his career. Like in so, 1950. this is uh, that's mind blowing to me that you, you know that you weren't just dealing with club owners or offending a, a studio executive. There was a time where you know if you pissed off a soldier, you had to do a sit down with the capo and and you know work this shit out. That's right. Because the soldiers are going to be the guys that want to hang out at the clubs. Usually, the capo if they, if a big guy's in the room, they're going to let you know the big guys in the room. But you never know who these guns are, right? So there's probably at that time a good possibility in a mob bone club that there were three or four contract killers yeah ready to fucking pull a trigger at the drop of an insult the other thing that's interesting about that code is that it works both ways sometimes if a low-level mob guy picked on the comedian and the capo felt that he was out of line then that low-level mob guy would pay the price and that happened with jack carter in miami beach um i think in the early to mid 60s he walked into a steakhouse that was connected to the club afterwards, and this young um, sort of upstart mob tough just got uh, got tough with Jack Carter and slugged him, and they got into a fist fight. And Jack Carter didn't know why; he was just blindsided by this goon. And uh, <clears throat> Jack Carter phoned a friend there in Miami Beach who knew everybody, yeah. knew who everybody was. And he yeah. said, "I don't know what's going on. I just got attacked by this mob guy. I don't know if I'm in trouble." And he said, you know, describe the guy for me, his friend said, and he did. And he said, yeah, I think I know who, who that was. Was it at the Place for Steak restaurant? He goes, yeah. He goes, okay, stay in your hotel room. Don't go anywhere until I call you. I'm going to make a phone call. He phoned uh, one of the Fischetti brothers in Chicago and yeah. explained the situation. <laughs> and Fischetti said, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, Beckley. He's, he's out of line. He's out yeah, of line. Yeah, yeah. Jack Carter said he got a phone call from his friend four hours later in the yeah. hotel room. He goes, okay, it's okay. You're, you're clear. And he goes, well, what do you mean? He goes, don't worry about it. It's okay. He said he was reading the paper a week later. This guy who attacked him was found floating in the ocean, his body parts chopped up and thrown in a garbage can. Probably not because of the Jack Carter thing. Well, it was only a few days later. And this yeah, guy but I mean, line. generally, no matter, that guy, must, it must have been the last straw. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. I'm sure in Jack's mind, he thinks like, eh, that guy got what he deserved for beating me up or getting in a fist fight, but that must have been the last fucking I'm straw. Sure, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. Yeah. I mean, come on. You're not going to, you know what I mean? I, they, they're not going to kill a made guy because some Jew got insulted. <laughs> right? But, uh, but, well, that story, well, let's get back to this thing, though, because, you, you know, you say this is the kid, the people you grew up with. I mean, you're younger than me. I, I, I didn't say I grew up with them, but I used to see a lot of Jack Carter in... Frankly, I'm a bit of a, a bit of a fraud because when I talk to these guys, they assume that I'm almost their age. You know, well, because well, I know about them. Well, that's crazy because I know you're younger than me. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, what was the what was the moment for you where where you're like that, that guy's a window into something that is dark and and rich and uh, and and overly fascinating that is you know just filled with with festering dark it, weirdness it, it fairly uh, recently like i'm really i've been able to consume a lot of this stuff through youtube and the internet and really without that i would be lost i don't understand guys that had researched shit in the 60s and 70s and wrote elaborate books and went to libraries and i was like i can't even conceive of that not only how you would go about doing that, but why you would ever want to fucking do that when I can just go on the internet and do a simple search and watch some videos. But with guys like Jack Carter and uh, Milton Berle, especially, who I always hated and I've come to Did kinda, you write on him though? No, but I, but I always kind of hated him, but I've come to like him. But he and Jack Carter have a similar quality that fascinates me. If you watch them in almost any television footage doing stand-up, they got this sense of desperation in their eyes. Look at their eyes. Yeah, they, the, they're darting yeah. around. They're never comfortable on stage. These are guys that were in showbiz their whole life, and they're still not comfortable on stage. There seems to be this undercurrent that they're terrified that at any moment the audience is going to turn on them or not laugh at what they say. And Milton Berle, who was a master 
stepped on his laughs constantly. Oh, he I went know, from yeah. one to another to another. And it was because there was this fear, I think, instilled in him that people weren't going to respond, that wouldn't like him, and he overcompensated. Or they'd see him. Yeah, see the real Milton Berle. I mean, I mean, you know, I noticed that too about guys that go too fast in my own mind is that, you know, because what happens if the laughs stop, you know, what are you going to do then? I mean, you're going to desperately try to get laughs, but in that desperation, you're going to reveal your hand, which is you're a sad, desperate yeah. man. That desperation is the undercurrent that fascinates me. And I think it's the undercurrent for mo- most stand-up comics and most performers but to actually see that that was a through line and a constant through all the showbiz history, I think is something that's not quite acknowledged. We think of dark comics as uh, guys that were addicted to coke in the 70s and 80s, but back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, it was just as dark. But people think it was a squeaky clean time, that it was a leave it to beaver era, and I try and... Uh, well, the show people have always been show people. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the jazz age is the jazz age, but before that, there was always, you know, bennies and... Yeah, and pills I, and dilated. Exactly. I think the, te- the television just distorts this for us, and then people who get their history from watching TV of that era uh, have a totally skewed sense. You know, especially when I talk to old people who go, "I don't like the language of these young comics today." When some of these old guys are the dirtiest, most foul-mouthed, most vile guys you could ever listen to. You yeah, know? and they, but there are also guys like not unlike guys today, and I think the thing that we share is that you know they're guys who chose to do this fucking ridiculous thing with their life that really forced them and i'm sure you know there's there's certainly a level of freedom to it but for guys that had a comment on the way things are and make people laugh at their own lives these guys live completely off the grid lives i mean some of them have wives and kids but show people still have to go into the caves you know every night and have to sit there and eat with the other annoying jews until (laughs) four in the morning and you know figure out who's uh, funnier and who's who's joke but there's that that moment in uh like broadway danny rose that table in that deli, uh, who's that? Who's that? It was Jack Capri, uh, Gale, uh, Jackie Gale, Jackie Gale, Sandy Barron, Will Jordan, and uh, was Capri Dick Capri Cor- Corbett Monica? Oh, Corbett Monica. Yeah, I mean, well, the, a lot of those guys are dead now, right? Uh, they're all dead except for Will Jordan. Yeah, Jackie Gale was filthy, and he was Lenny Bruce's best friend, right? Uh, he, they were close, right? Yeah, I don't know if they were best friends, but. Uh, what do you think of this, though? Like, there's this weird thing that I got, and I don't know if you got it, too. Like, how, how, much, how many of the, the roasts have you watched, the Dean Martin roasts? I, they all kind of blend together. Did you see that one that, that Don Rickles hosted that it looked like he was doing, it was a special one, and it was mostly a celebrity audience? It was almost done. Oh, that's was, from the Dean Martin show. Yeah. Right. It was done on a soundstage? Yes. Now, let me ask you something, because I have not had the opportunity to interview him yet, and I was, I was hoping to, but he's, he, uh, he's had death in the family recently. Um there is undeniable vicious rage in that guy's face, is there not? <laughs> Especially when he was younger, yeah. And, like, you know, because he's, like, such a sweet guy, and there's this idea that, like, you know, yeah, I'm just having a good time, but I've never seen a fury as intense on a guy's face as that, and there's moments. Well, that that being said, though, that uh, performance, which is from a staged uh, episode of the Dean Martin show where they would invite this exclusive celebrity audience and have Don Rickles do his thing that he did in the nightclub. Right. That was his big break. He had already done sitcoms, but in terms of stand-up, that was his big break. It, it, it that sh- one thing. Mm-hmm. So I think the pressure was on for him to deliver in a way he had never delivered I didn't realize before. that was the context of that performance. Yeah, because he had done television before. He had done an episode of The Addams Family and shit like that, but he had never really done his stand-up act and it was kind of unprecedented to give anybody that amount of time to do stand-up on TV, because I think that's a 15-minute performance. It's amazing. 
and he's on fire. There's one moment in that performance that is staged, unfortunately, and it's when Bob Hope walks in from the back and the camera cuts to him immediately and shows him coming in with a newspaper and sitting down in the back and Don Rickles says, oh, Bob Hope's here. What, is the war over? And this is during the Vietnam era. <laughs> and that, that line, which is a great line, is a line that did happen, I think, a couple months earlier in Vegas when Bob Hope walked in uh-huh. and he improvised that and they recreated that. Oh, God, that. I remember some of those moments where uh, when he was on those roasts when I was a kid, I could it killed me. when they Jimmy Stewart, I talked to the family, you're doing fine. <laughs> uh, oh, God, he was fucking great. But what I was getting at is that they, there was something that irritated me in the documentary about Don, you know, and I love Don Rickles, but there was definitely this thing where you know, uh, Lenny Bruce was brought up briefly, and, and I don't know if he brought it up or someone else brought it up, but there was this thing that's sort of like, ah, oh, he was with the drugs and the this, you know, that there was definitely a, a schism between guys who, who, who played it straight and guys who were fucked up or guys who couldn't keep their shit together. Was there not in your mind or in your research? Well, I think everybody was fucked up. It was a matter of those who... who Degree. Sh- who did to open, who didn't. Yeah, and who was able to control that persona and let it affect their career or be shown or, or to ruin them or not. Uh, Shecky Green was as fucked up as anybody. And to this day, I don't think anybody... But I think it really ruined ...realizes him. to that degree. I think he would say it ruined yeah. him. But um, I, don't, I don't know how... He's not acknowledged in the same way it is with some of the other guys like Lenny Bruce. Maybe because he died so young, but. and also because of the 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 reach of his relevance. I mean that you know that Lenny Bruce became mythologized, you know, while he was alive, you know, and and someone like Shecky Green is 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 a is a footnote, yeah. in some ways in the history of comedy, yeah. But you know, Lenny Bruce set some sort of fucked up standard, yeah. Yeah, do you think he killed himself? Well, you know. Uh... His drug problem goes back further than anybody realizes. It started, no, I know, in like, yeah. you know, it started in the late forties when he was still just a mimic. And he a, was still a an clown. impressionist. Yeah. He was doing heroin at that age and that era. So I think uh, uh, his health was going to be compromised one way or the other. Like he was an addict very early on. And think about for it for a long time in that era. Uh, you know, the attitude towards heroin addicts and the idea of getting a, a clean needle or scoring your heroin it was a darker period even though it's still the darkest thing in the world eh? sure um he was addicted to smack down as we call it in canada um in 1949 down well okay so now okay we discussed uh you know the shecky green we discussed the the jack roy uh i i think that the the seminal pieces for me that you that 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 really changed the way i thought was uh, yeah, the Shecky Green piece, the Jack Roy Joances piece, um, and like that. Let's let's get into that story about Alan Drake a little bit. Sure. That that in that piece, um, that's where you, you I really learned about the this sort of uh, the business structure of, of the mob evolving. Let's get into that story about Alan Drake because this is a fascinating thing to me. Well, Alan Drake was a comedian I only learned about a couple months ago. Yeah, uh, a total cockamamie comic. Uh, which is a word I picked up from talking to these old guys. Not an original guy, right? No, just a s- substandard joke book memorizing comic from the 40s. And he never really had any fame, but he played all the same kind of supper clubs and nightclubs that everybody did. He was an opening act, but uh, he started out as a cab driver in Miami Beach. And he used to drive mob guys from one place to another. And this one mob guy named Anthony Carfano took a liking to him and mm-hmm. said, I want you to be my personal chauffeur. And he hired him on the pay- put him on the payroll as his personal chauffeur, and Alan Drake got to know all these mob guys. At the same time, a couple comedians that are forgotten, a guy named Jackie Miles and a guy named Lenny Kent, who were very desperate, sad, fucked up comics who fucked a lot of whores 
and had drug addictions as well. And Jackie Miles was really famous for about five years because he didn't go to war during World War II and all the other comics did. So he got all the work. Anyways, that's another story. Alan Drake um, used to drive those comics around and they thought he was really funny. And they sort of prompted him. They said, you should try and go up on stage. You're a funny guy. And so he did. He slowly started doing stand-up while he was still the chauffeur for this mobster. And this mobster said, you know, I got connections. I can get you some good bookings. And what some family of the was clubs. he in? He was under the tutelage of, well, it went back and forth. It was initially uh, Vito Genovese, crime family. And then when he went to prison, it was taken over by Frank Costello. And that's part of the crux of the story. Right, right. But at the time, he was under the he was in the Genovese family. Yeah. He was just a soldier. He, he grew up with Genovese, and so they were quite uh, close. Mm-hmm. And he was a surrogate in Miami. Genovese was in New York. So he's uh, a big guy. Yeah, he was big enough. He was yeah. big enough. And he kind of looked after the operations. You know, he wasn't a hitman, but mm-hmm. he made sure everything ran smoothly in Miami Beach uh, at their entities that they had there, which were several. So he said, I got connections. I can get you some good bookings. I can get you into the Copa in New York. You know, that's a top club. I can get you into this club and that club. And uh, Alan Drake said, yeah, by all means. He didn't have that great of an act. But he was hitched to big opening act or big uh, headliners like Tony Martin and mm-hmm. the big singers of the day. And even in a couple of the variety reviews I found, it was really quite amusing knowing the backstory now where it said, Alan Drake is opening for Tony Martin, which is interesting because Tony Martin usually has top stars opening with him. Hmm. Maybe there's more than meets the eye. There's hmm. like this ominous But no tone. one's going to no point a finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he did that. But uh, little uh, little Anthony Carfano was a bit. His nickname was Little Augie. It's funny though that even Variety was not going to fuck with that. Yeah, nobody would fuck with. But that. they knew it. Yeah, because like at that time in show business, certainly in the you know boots on the ground show business, the mob was running most of it. Oh yeah, yeah, by all means. So um, uh, little Augie Anthony Carfano was a bit of a Machiavellian in the sense that Alan Drake had a gorgeous wife yeah. who was a Miss America and a showgirl. Uh, and uh, the mobster, uh, Little Augie, loved her. Yeah. So he started sending Alan Drake on the road to do these gigs in New York, and meanwhile he starts fucking uh, Alan Drake's wife yeah. while the comic's on the road, and they became very intimate. Over the course of a couple of years, this went on. And he's uh, calling his wife at home saying, sorry, baby, I, yeah. Yeah, I'll be home soon. Yeah, you know, I'm exactly. working a lot. Exactly. He's exactly. like, okay, honey. Yeah, so Alan Drake's star is rising. He's becoming a... Not a big star, but he's playing all the big rooms. He's yeah. getting a lot of attention and a lot of exposure. But he wasn't ever going to become a big star because he wasn't that good. He wasn't that talented, mm-hmm. but he had the mob helping him. You know, right. it's like anything that's manufactured even today. You know, sure. musicians that aren't that talented, yeah. they, some corporation you push them. Yeah, exactly. So, um, long story short, and you can read it in this WFMU article uh, called uh, "The Comedians, the Mob, and the American Supper Club" on the WFMU site, but. Um, Little Anthony or Little Augie, Anthony Carfano got into trouble with the Genovese and Costello warring factions. There was a power play at the top of the mob because Genovese went to prison and Costello was appointed head. When Genovese got out of prison, he wanted to be head of the family again. And there was this power struggle where that wasn't going to happen. Well, Frank Costello, there was a hit on his life. A bullet grazed his head. He survived, but he stepped down for the sake of his life. But anybody that had been associated with him was now persona non grata. And that included Alan Drake, the comedian, because he had been under Frank Costello for the last 10 years doing these nightclubs that Frank Costello ran. And so when that happened, nobody wanted to book Alan but, Drake. But Genovese was still, what happened to Little Augie? I mean, the thing is, like, they were, he was a Genovese guy, right? So why, when Genovese took because back- Because when, when Genovese took it back over- 
he went to all the guys and said, okay, Costello's not in charge anymore. You're Who with me. Who is true to me. So don't talk to Costello. And little Augie wavered. He hem and hawed briefly. He went, ah, because he was really loyal He's to Costello. Hedging, he was hedging his bets. Yeah, he didn't want to get knocked off by the guy he wasn't. He was he was saying who's going to win this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he went with the one he was. He well, was, he went. He ended up going with Genovese, but he he hesitated initially. He went. Eh, I don't yeah, know. yeah, yeah. And because of that hesitation, uh, Genovese never forgot it. So he he took little Augie back under his wing. He said, "Okay, kid, you've made the wise choice. Kept him close, not letting him suspect that he was going to be knocked off because of that hesitation a year right. earlier." So, uh, Alan Drake is on the road doing a show in Washington D.C. And little Augie is fucking his wife and they go out for a night on the town. And that night when they were returning to their car, there was hitmen waiting for them. And they drove them out to some part, some part of uh, New York, somewhere out in the Bronx. And they murdered little Augie and his date, which was Alan Drake, the comedian's wife. So she got murdered in this mob hit while he was on the road. And when that happened, that's when Alan Drake's career ended because he was still associated with, with uh, little Augie who had just been murdered. So uh-huh. none of the guys at the nightclubs wanted to defy the 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 top mob guys that had just murdered Alan Drake's connection. Huh. So his career went right into the toilet because his whole career had been buoyed by the mob. Right. And that was a sad story. And you found out more about the wife? Uh, I didn't find out that much about the wife other than the fact that she had been questioned in connection with a different mob slaying in 1951 and another mob slaying in 1950. So she's a mob groupie. She could have been very well a decoy uh-huh. for certain mobsters that were going to get murdered huh. where she went on a date with them and led them to a, to a place. That's just total speculation. speculation. And then Alan Drake went on to obscurity. He kept doing a bit of stand-up for the next decades and the gigs that he could get. Red Fox was friends with him. I think it was a drug thing. They were both big into coke. And Red Fox got him some guest shots on Sanford and Son in the 70s. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And then I talked to this guy, Saul Weinstein, who wrote for Alan Drake, wrote for Joey Lewis, the guy who had his throat slit, and wrote for another mob comic named Jackie Cannon. And he told me that he eventually left Alan Drake, stopped writing for him because he got too weird and too dark and too drugged out. And that in order to survive, because he couldn't get stand-up gigs, Alan Drake became a cocaine dealer. That's not in my article because I discovered that later. Wow. I've seen stuff like that happen. Not to you know, not in that era, obviously. That's a fascinating story because I think all the stories that we've talked about are sort of, you know, junctures in, in in you know how we see that that period of comedy. Now let's talk about um, Richard Nixon on Laughing because you know your insight into that, like that that was really a, a profound attempt for Nixon to try to co-opt the subculture a little bit. Yes, and it was not presented that way. Uh, You've talked to George Schlatter. I've talked to George Schlatter. I didn't interview George Schlatter for that article, but I've been uh, friendly with George for the past uh, year. He's a fascinating guy. I heard David Cross on your show talking about Bernie Brillstein and his yeah. relationship with them or with him, and that's how I kind of feel with George Schlatter. Just this larger-than-life, old-timey guy, a throwback to another era where guys in charge of large entities are very personable, very big and have crazy fucking stories of their early career. Like George Slaughter produced the Judy Garland show in 1963 for six episodes until he was fired by CBS. Um, and just all kinds of crazy things. And then of course he created laughing and helped discover Lily Tomlin and Goldie Hawn and gave a lot of big people their starts. Lauren Michaels, one of his first jobs writing for laughing, George Slaughter hired him all this, you know, crazy backstory. So I like George Slaughter. But I uh, grew up watching clips of Laugh-In on Sweeps Week specials and things like that. 
And I always found it kind of hokey, you know. Yeah. Um, but there was always this kind of story. It was the old guard trying to yeah, appropriate the hippie culture. Yeah, let's do 40s jokes, but paint people's bodies with yeah. flowers in a psychedelic fashion, right. you know. Um, so, But people used to say, oh, it was a real uh, counterculture show on the yeah. network. All the hippie kids loved it. Maybe they did, but- uh, I don't think they did. You watch it, it's very square. Yeah. It's very, 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 very square. Um, so I wondered where this came from, this this idea that it was a counterculture show. You still kind of hear that. Oh, we were so risk-taking, so ahead of our time. You'll hear Schlatter and people yeah. say, that. I don't think so. And any show that has Richard Nixon as a guest star, and there's that famous clip of him saying, sock it to me, the catchphrase on laughing, and Nixon can't even pronounce it properly, the, the, uh, the sock it to me, yeah. you know. Um, any show that uses Richard Nixon, that's not a counterculture show. You've, right. you've, you've bought into the system, right? And there is speculation that that cameo by Richard Nixon put him over the top to be elected president in 1968. And it was part of an elaborate... That and the rigging of the actual voting, I'm sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was an elaborate effort to reshape the persona of Richard Nixon because when he did that famous JFK debate in, uh, in 62... The sweaty Nixon. Yeah, he came across so poor on television. Yeah. And the, the famous story is that that affected the election and that's why JFK won and Nixon didn't because JFK looked good on TV and Nixon didn't. So when that happened... Nixon and his organizers regrouped and said, we can never let that happen again. We have to learn everything we can about television, about manipulating the medium for our benefit, how to present um, uh, a context for Nixon so people don't actually know what he's really like because they would never vote for this fucking yeah. shady guy otherwise. Yeah. And a lot of the guys on there, on the Nixon staff for those several years were young university kids, right-wing university guys, like University of Chicago kind of guys, who had just discovered the works of Marshall McLuhan. Right. And they had read Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man, in which McLuhan talks about all these things, about how you can shape perceptions and sh shape people's thoughts uh, by effectively uh, uh, using the television medium. Right. And so these they used these uh, principles of Marshall McLuhan and applied them to Richard Nixon to shape him into a guy that people would vote for. And one of the young Turks that was involved in that was Roger Ailes, who went on to found Fucking or be president of Fox evil, News. Evil wizard. So he was a low-level producer on the Mike Douglas talk show in the uh -huh. late 60s, and Nixon uh -huh. was a guest. Uh -huh. And that's how Roger Ailes met him. And he said, you know, uh, Mr. Nixon, I, I got some uh, ideas that might help. He was brought on staff, and he was one of the people instrumental in cultivating Nixon for all the talk show appearances and his appearance on Laugh-In in 1968, along with one of the head writers of Laugh-In, a right-wing comedy writer, named Paul W. Keyes, who would eventually be on the payroll of the Nixon administration at the same time that he was one of the head writers of Laugh-In, which seems like an incredible contradiction for those who think of Laugh-In as this counterculture right. beacon. Right, That's a great fucking story. Roger Ailes, who knew that? I didn't know Lorne Michaels wrote for Schwatter. Mm -hmm. And that guy Keyes. Well, that stuff kind of happens a lot in, you know... It's always amazing when you pull the curtain back from that shit and oh, you realize wow, yeah. like we're, it, there's no integrity to any of it. And of course that makes sense. It's not even far-fetched. Certainly not in the media landscape we live in now. It, it's fascinating. And there's a lot of stuff that uh, when some of the Nixon tapes came out in the past few years and you can actually listen to those crazy tapes, there's a conversation with uh, Richard Nixon on the phone. He's phoning Dan Rowan and, uh, and Dick Martin to thank them. They came to his birthday party. They fucking loved Richard Nixon. They were big fans. They they made all this money from laughing. They suddenly became these big right wing guys, and they yeah. fucking kissed his ass. Well, that's a, but that also speaks a lot to 
the the nature of show business that you know as somebody who did politics in my own career that you know most show business publicly is not political right uh and just to close off yeah you know, i know you wrote a piece on pygmy markham you know what was your fascination with him uh, I, I try not to write about uh, race factors too much because it makes me a bit of a polemic. And then the comment sections are filled with people on both sides, either uh, dismissing my assertions or saying that I don't know enough about it, which is probably true. I have no education. But Big Meat but- Markham was one of the the, the, the original sort of, uh, I, I, I think it would be called still the Chitlin Circuit at that time. And, you know, w- between him and Red Fox, there was very little crossover at the times that they, they came about, correct? Yeah, the black comics were not considered uh, television friendly. Bl- black comics that were huge stars in the black community and even in some of the white nightclub community did not get television exposure. Although Ed Sullivan, to his credit, gave a lot of black comics a lot of exposure as early as the late 40s including Pigmeat Markham. But uh, my fascination with Pigmeat Markham was the arc of his career because he was an old-timey comic that suddenly... He probably did minstrelsy, did he? This is the thing. In the article, um, which is called Last Man in Blackface, this I found astounding and amazing, and I still don't quite understand it, and this is why I wrote that article. Um, We all know about uh, White Axe uh, doing blackface from the 1880s right through the second world war what i didn't know was that black acts like burt williams and pygmy markham did black wore blackface sure yeah and no I, a, lot of, a lot of minstrels he was black that, that, that blows my mind a, a guy that is african-american puts on burnt cork mm-hmm. and 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 doles himself up like a white performer doing blackface would i couldn't understand the reason why and i never came up with a proper con- conclusion i found four different theories in my research uh, one was that some black performers couldn't get booked in white venues, so they would pose as white in blackface. Um, there was another uh, theory that uh, well, Pigmeat Markham said that that's just what you did when you broke in. Everybody did it, so he did it. But he got so comfortable with it, by the 30s, he couldn't go on stage without it. He was totally insecure without this black cork mask yeah well i think also what it speaks to is uh, it's sort of a consolidation of the black stereotype that you know you had the white interpretation uh which was you know over the top and awful and minstrelsy but that became the the standard identifier of of what black was in show business because i know that black minstrelsy was 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 real i mean and they they happened at the same time yeah but i think it was just a standardization of the black type that the stereotypical uh, type. Well, I found it fascinating, and Pygmy Markham was the last black performer to stick with that. Even after the war- Second World War, he was still- and he was on Laughing as well, wasn't he? Yeah, that's when his career uh, came back, and, he, and there was a crossover with white audiences, but- uh, Here comes the judge. Yeah, but the NAACP um, tried to kill his career because he refused to stop performing in blackface after the Second World War. He said, I've been doing it my whole life. Don't tell me what to do. I'm a veteran performer. I know how to perform, yeah. and the people love it. Go fuck yourself. Um, so his career actually kind of floundered, maybe under the pressure of the NAACP. He stopped getting booked in a lot of black clubs. And in the late 40s through the 50s and the first half of the 60s, he became very obscure. Older black people remembered him from the Apollo. And he still did some stuff with Moms Mabley, but his career was not the same until Laughing. Pigmeat Markham started doing cameos because Sammy Davis Jr. was a guest and he did a Pigmeat Markham bit. And it got a huge response, and the, he did the catchphrase of Pigmeat's, here come the judge. That's where that comes from, which Pigmeat Markham did in the 30s. And Sammy grew up watching Pigmeat Markham, so he it was like an homage. He was dressed in a judge outfit and said, here come the judge. And I think George Slaughter or somebody around there said, whatever happened to that guy who used to do that, Pigmeat Markham? 
And I don't know who said it, but somebody said, I think he lives in this rooming house, you know, in, in Washington, D.C. They tracked him down. They flew him to Los Angeles. They taped the episode at the NBC studios in Burbank. And it revitalized his career, mostly because of this fucking catchphrase, you know, yeah. sock it to me. Here come the judge. Another reason why laughing was really a lot of bullshit. It was yeah. based on all these catchphrases. But that revitalized Pigmeat Markham's career. He was in his 70s, suddenly had records coming out again. Chess Records was pressing all these comedy albums by him. A single, a song called Here Come the Judge, backed up by a bunch of soul artists, which is actually fucking great. And he got big gigs. He was opening for Aretha Franklin in the early 70s, all this kind of stuff. Huh. And he became a big star again. I think he died in 1974. Did he stop doing blackface? I think he did, yeah. He finally came back, and I think maybe they said, no more blackface. All right. Cliff Nestor off. Yes. Cliff Nestor off. Thank yes. you for talking to me. Now, where can we get these? I want people to go to you. And also, dude, you got to you know, you gotta get that. That mob story is a great movie. You been having any talks? None. None. All right. All right. Jack it, Carter it, was my only connection with Beverly Hills. Oh, now that, it's it, all it, over. It, unfortunately, it doesn't end well, but there's got to be somebody that's, I mean- all right, let's, we'll talk about it. So it, just what give the, it's a w, WFMU. If people, the easiest way to find it is just to Google my name, Cliff Nesteroff. K-L-I-P-H, spelled ridiculously. Look that up. You'll find a link to, or type that in with WFMU. You'll find an archive of articles about the dark side of old-timey comedy. Thanks for talking, man. Thanks, Mark. That's it. That's our show. I hope that was uh, engaging for you. I certainly love talking to Cliff. And go to the WFMU, beware of the blog, blog, or whatever. Do a search on Cliff's name, K-L-I-P-H-N-E-S-T-E-R-O-F-F, to read that stuff. It's great stuff. He's just a great writer on a very specific subject with a great tone. Uh, what else? Go to WTFPod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'll mail you some stuff you know, once a week. Buy some merch. Got new posters up there. Uh, I'm going to be in Michigan at the Magic Bag Theater, Ferndale, Michigan, September 29th for two shows. I'll also be at Riot LA for a WTF on September 22nd. That's going to feature uh, Ron Lynch, Chris Garcia, Andy Dick, and Lance Bangs, Eddie Pepitone, Jim Earl, maybe a special guest. I think you can go to RiotLA.com or something similar to that. Find that information. JustCoffee.coop, of course, available. Kick in a few shekels at WTFPod.com. See who's been on the show. Leave a comment. Do what you got to do. Next week, Key and Peel. Is that it? I got to go find LaFonda. No time for Boomer. Boomer's fine. LaFonda's out in the world making us worry and fight. We need peace in the house. <laughs> <laughs>